chapter 3 of From Ritual to Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From Ritual to Romance by Jesse Ladley Weston. Chapter 3 The Freeing of the Waters. To begin at the beginning was the old storytelling formula, and it was a very sound one, if the beginning could only be definitely ascertained. As our nearest possible approach to it, I would draw attention to certain curious parallels in the earliest literary monuments of our race. I would at the same time beg those scholars who may think it a far cry from the romances of the 12th century of our era to some 1,000 years before Christ, to suspend their judgment till they have fairly examined the evidence for a tradition common to the Aryan race in general and persisting with extraordinary vitality and a marked correspondence of characteristic detail through all migrations and modifications of the trace, down to the present day. Turning back to the earliest existing literary evidence, the Rig Veda, we become aware that in this vast collection of over 1,000 poems, it is commonly known as the Thousand and One Hymns, but the poems contained in it are more than that in number, are certain parallels with our grail stories, which, if taken by themselves, are perhaps interesting and suggestive rather than in any way conclusive, yet which, when they are considered in relation to the entire body of evidence, assume a curious significance and importance. We must first note that a very considerable number of the Rig Veda hymns depend for their initial inspiration on the actual bodily needs and requirements of a mainly agricultural population, that is, of a people that depend upon the fruits of the earth for their subsistence, and to whom the regular and ordered sequence of the processes of nature was a vital necessity. The hymns and prayers, and, as we have strong reason to suppose, their dramatic ritual, were devised for the main purpose of obtaining from the gods of their worship that which was essential to ensure their well-being and the fertility of their land, warmth, sunshine, above all sufficient water. That this last should, in an eastern land under a tropical sun, become a point of supreme importance is easily to be understood. There is consequently small cause for surprise when we find, throughout the collection, the God who bestows upon them this much-desired boon, to be the one to whom by far the greater proportion of the hymns are addressed. It is not necessary here to enter into a discussion as to the original conception of Indra and the place occupied by him in the early Aryan pantheon, whether he was originally regarded as a god of war or a god of weather. What is important for our purpose is the fact that it is Indra to whom a disproportionate number of the hymns of the Rig Veda are addressed, that is from him the much-desired boon of rain and abundant water is besought, and that the feet which, 
above all others redounded to his praise and is ceaselessly glorified both by the god himself and his grateful worshippers is precisely the feat by which the grail heroes gavain and percival rejoiced the hearts of a suffering folk that is the restoration of the rivers to the channels the freeing of the waters tradition relates that the seven great rivers of india had been imprisoned by the evil giant vritra or ahi whom indra slew thereby releasing the streams from their captivity the rig vedahums abound in references to this feat it will only be necessary to cite a few from among the numerous passages i have noted thou hast set loose the seven rivers to flow thou causest water to flow on every side indra set free the waters thou indra hast slain vritra by thy vigor thou hast set free the rivers thou hast slain the slumbering ahi for the release of the waters and hast marked out the channels of the all-delighting rivers indra has filled the rivers he has inundated the dry land indra has released the imprisoned waters to flow upon the earth it would be easy to fill pages with similar quotations but these are sufficient for our purpose among the Rig Veda hymns are certain poems in dialogue form, which from their curious and elliptic character have been the subject of much discussion among scholars. Professor Oldenberg, in drawing attention to their peculiarities, had expressed his opinion that these poems were the remains of a distinct type of early Indian literature, where verses forming the central and illuminating point of a formal ceremonial recital had been fast with illustrative and explanatory prose passages the form of the verses being fixed that of the prose being varied at the will of the reciter this theory which is technically known as the akiana theory as it derived its starting point from the discussion of the Supernakiana text, won considerable support, but was contested by M. Sylvain Levy, who asserted that in these hymns we had the remains of the earliest and oldest Indian dramatic creations, the beginning of the Indian drama, and that the fragments could only be satisfactorily interpreted from the point of view that they were intended to be spoken, not by a solitary reciter, but by two or more dramatis personae. J. Hertel, der Ursprung des indischen Dramas und Epos, went still further, and while accepting and demonstrating the justice of his interpretation of the dialogue poems, suggested a similar origin for certain monologues found in the same collection. Professor Leopold von Schröder, in his extremely interesting volume Mysterium und Mimus im Rigveda, has given a popular and practical form to the results of these researches by translating and publishing with an explanatory study a selection of these early culture dramas explaining the speeches and placing them in the mouth of the respective actors to whom they were presumably assigned 
Professor von Schröder holds the entire group to be linked together by one common intention, that is to say, the purpose of stimulating the processes of nature, and of obtaining as a result of what may be called a ritual culture drama, an abundant return of the fruits of the earth. The whole book is rich in parallels drawn from ancient and modern sources, and is of extraordinary interest to the folklore student. In the light drawn by Professor von Schröder's researches, following as they do upon the illuminating studies of Mannhardt and Fraser, we become strikingly aware of the curious vitality and persistence of certain popular customs and beliefs, and while the two last-named writers have rendered inestimable service to the study of comparative religion by linking the practices of classical and medieval times with the folk customs of today, we recognize through von Schröder's work that the root of such belief and custom is embedded in a deeper stratum of folk tradition than we had hitherto realized that it is, in fact, a heritage from the far-off past of the Aryan peoples. For the purposes of our special line of research, Mysterium and Mimus offers much of value and interest. As noted above, the main object of these primitive dramas was that of encouraging, you may say ensuring, the fertility of the earth. Thus it is not surprising that more than one deals with the theme of which we are treating, the freeing of the waters. Only that whereas in the quotations given above, the worshippers praise Indra for his beneficent action, here Indra himself in propria persona appears and wounds his feet. Ich schlug den Vritra mit der Kraft des Indra. Durch eigenen Grimm war ich so stark geworden. Ich machte für die Menschen frei, die Wasser. And the impersonated rivers speak for themselves. Indra, den Blitz im Arm, brach uns die Bahnen. Er schlug den Vritra, die Ströme einschloss. There is no need to insist further on the point that the task of the Grail hero is, in his special respect, no mere literary invention, but a heritage from the achievements of the prehistoric heroes of the Aryan race. But the poem selected by Professor von Schröder for discussion offers a further and more curious parallel with the Grail romances. In section 8 of the work referred to, the author discusses the story of Rishya Kringa, as the Mahabharata names the hero. Here we find a young Brahmin, brought up by his father, Vipandaka, in a lonely forest hermitage, absolutely ignorant of the outside world and even of the very existence of beings other than his father and himself. He has never seen a woman and does not know that such a creature exists. A drought falls upon a neighboring kingdom, and the inhabitants are reduced to great straits for lack of food. The king, seeking to know by what means the sufferings of his people may be relieved, learns that so long as Rishyakringa continues chaste, so long will the drought endure. 
an old woman who has a fair daughter of irregular life undertakes the seduction of the hero the king has a ship or raft both versions are given fitted out with all possible luxury and an apparent hermit's cell erected upon it the old woman her daughter and companions embark and the river carries them to a point not far from the young brahmin's hermitage taking advantage of the absence of his father the girl visits rishyakringa in his forest cell giving him to understand that she is a hermit like himself which the boy in his innocence believes he is so fascinated by her appearance and caresses that on her leaving him he deep in thought of the lovely visitor forgets for the first time his religious duties on his father's return he innocently relates what has happened and the father warns him that fiends in this fair disguise strive to tempt hermits to their undoing the next time the father is absent the temptress watching her opportunity returns and persuades the boy to accompany her to her hermitage which he assures him is far more beautiful than his own so soon as Rishyakringa is safely on board the ship sails the lad is carried to the capital of the rainless land the king gives him his daughter as wife and so soon as the marriage is consummated the spell is broken and rain falls in abundance professor von schröder points out that there is little doubt that in certain earlier versions of the tale the king's daughter herself played the role of temptress there is no doubt that a ceremonial marriage very frequently formed a part of the fertility ritual and was supposed to be especially efficacious in bringing about the effect desired the practice subsists in indian ritual to this hour and the surviving traces in european folk custom have been noted in full by mannhardt in his exhaustive work on wald und feldkulte its existence in classic times is well known and it is certainly one of the living folk customs for which a well-attested chain of descent can be cited professor von schröder remarks that the efficacy of the rite appears to be enhanced by the previous strict observance of the rule of chastity by the officiant what however is of more immediate interest for our purpose is the fact that the richer gringer story does in effect possess certain curious points of contract with the grail tradition thus the lonely upbringing of the youth in a forest far from the haunts of man his absolute ignorance of the existence of human beings other than his parent and himself present a close parallel to the accounts of percival's youth and woodland life as related in the grail romances in gerber's continuation we are told that the marriage of the hero is an indispensable condition of achieving the quest a detail which must have been taken over from an earlier version as gerbert proceeds to stultify himself by describing the solemnities of the marriage and the ceremonial blessing of the nuptial couch after which hero and heroine 
simultaneously agree to live a life of strict chastity and are rewarded by the promise that the swan knight shall be their descendant a tissue of contradictions which can only be explained by the maladroit blending of two versions one of which knew the hero as wedded the other as celibate there can be no doubt that the original Percival story included the marriage of the hero the circumstances under which Rishia Gringer is lured from his hermitage are curiously paralleled by the account found in the quest and menacier of Percival's temptation by a fiend in the form of a fair maiden who comes to him by water in a vessel hung with black silk and with great riches on board in pointing out these parallels i wish to make my position perfectly clear i do not claim that either in the regretta or in any other early aryan literary monument we can hope to discover the direct sources of the grey legend but what I would urge upon scholars is the fact that, in adopting the hypothesis of a nature cult as a possible origin, and examining the history of these cults, their evolution and their variant forms, we do, in effect, find at every period and stage of development undoubted points of contact, which, though taken separately, might be regarded as accidental in the ensemble can hardly be thus considered when every parallel to our grail story is found within the circle of a well-defined and carefully studied sequence of belief and practice when each and all form part of a well-recognized body of tradition the descent of which has been evidently demonstrated then I submit such parallels stand on a sound basis, and it is not unreasonable to conclude that the body of tradition containing them belongs to the same family and is to be interpreted on the same principles as the closely analogous rites and ceremonies. I suspend the notice and discussion of other poems contained in Professor von Schröder's collection till we have reached a later stage of the tradition, when the correspondence will be recognized as even more striking and suggestive. End of section 3